This is a crowd podcast. I get terrible butterflies, like really bad, before anything. It feels like somebody's playing the bongo drums in my guts. But the second it's time to work, every time, I've got to take a piss and then I'm calm. I am very calm. I'm incredibly methodical about my thoughts and actions. You never know what you're going to get, right? KC, he's still an enigma to me, despite everything that we found out in our last episode. This time, he's got another story to tell about going undercover in another country, trying to find a man for a distraught family led by a woman that he calls the Marine's wife. She looked at me, you know, and my face all cut, my eyes all black and swollen. And she's like, do you have any problems? I said, no, ma'am, nothing worth mentioning. So here's what we know, or what we think we know. Casey certainly knows a lot about surveillance and weapons, potentially from his time in the military, although he will never tell me. We're not going to talk about the military, my dear. And he might paint this picture of a brutish thug. But you know... There's a really soft side to him. He's been in love. He absolutely adores his mum. And he has this sort of reverential respect for women generally. Now, I should point out, I don't think that I am on that list yet. You see, he blows hot and cold with me. (laughs) I'm not going to discuss it, Sam. You're just going to have to live with that, and I'm sorry. Sometimes answering my questions with this extraordinary openness, but then other times... He just bats them away. Well, I can't tell you that. Otherwise, you're going to start doing my work and I won't have a job. I mean, my God, if I tell you everything, then I might as well just stay home and eat tacos. So why are you talking to me? I'm here because if it stops one or ten or a hundred and makes them think, maybe I shouldn't do this because those son of a bitches will come for me. Well, then that's better than what I've been doing for more than two decades. Because if this story starts getting out then I think it should do a lot of good. I'm Sam Walker, and this is American Vigilante, Episode 4, The Marine's Wife. Hey, Casey, how are you? How was your weekend? It was really good, actually. Kind of still recovering from some things, and I'm been in a significant amount of pain. Like right now, I feel like crying like a 10-year-old girl that got her blanket stolen from her. Not sleeping real good because of the pain, but I'm okay. I mean, I've been injured severely before. I mean, I was injured so severely, I woke up weeks after I was injured, and, you know, I couldn't move, and machines were breathing for me and all this. It changed me a lot of the way that I think. I believe in God, and I now honestly believe that God gives you life and will. And that's it. What you do with it's up to you. So situations you found yourself in where you have escaped almost against the odds or survived against the odds, do you believe because of your faith God had a hand in that? People are going to think I'm nuts, but yeah, I do. Because I sat down one time with somebody that was very close to me, and they're like, let's add up how many times you've almost really died. And I think there's like eight or ten, I can't remember. So, yeah, I think that for some ungodly reason, there's an extra hand involved in this, and I truly believe that. So the bad guys, the guys doing the kidnapping, the guys doing the abusing, those people who haven't made it out alive after meeting you, do you believe God had a hand in that as well? (laughs) Well, I sure as hell believe that I helped them meet him so that he could judge them. Do I feel any compassion or or remorse about things I've done? Oh, hell no. I feel more compassion for the kitten I saw got run over by a truck in front of me the other day, and I had to break its neck and put it out of its misery because it was still alive. I I cried, you know, but, but people like that, no. Fuck them. Let's talk about the Marine's wife. Okay. Horrific story. Uh, it was a little bit of an unusual call from uh, a woman. We'll call her. We're going to call her Allie. I had helped out Allie about five to six years before this. 
Um, her daughter had been taken, and it was kind of unusual because Allie was a police officer. So to make this really clear, Casey said that Allie's daughter wanted her to call him because something absolutely horrendous had happened to the family of a close friend. Her sister's two daughters had been brutalized, and as well as uh, their neighbor. So it was three little girls. Two of them, I do believe, were 11, one was 10. And what had happened was there was a, a handyman, a local handyman, and he'd been in the community for a few years, and, you know, he was around all the time. It was just part of the daily life. The girls got to know him and trust him, and he had a an apartment that he'd rented in a big old barn. He'd ended up eventually luring him into the barn. And when he got him in the barn, he'd locked him in there. And, uh, I mean, pretty disgusting. Um, it happened about two weeks, I think, before I even got notified. Law enforcement hadn't been able to find the man he'd left. They couldn't develop any leads. I, of course, immediately agreed to take the case. When I got there, it was a small town, nice little suburb area, and I went to the address I was given, and it it wasn't her sister's address. It was the grandmother's and grandfather. He was a Marine, big man, (laughs) very big man. You know, he was in his 60s. His hair was silver. His eyes were icy blue. Still had muscles that looked like ropes. His wife was this really tiny, tiny little woman. I mean, she's 5'1", 5'2", little itty-bitty thing. She goes, come on in, let's have some coffee. And I'm still kind of looking for the mom. And she goes, she's decided to stay with her daughter. She's letting us handle this. And I realized right then, I mean, I was looking in this woman's eyes and... You know, I haven't been afraid of a lot of things in my life other than my mother, and that woman scared me. The look in her eyes was, she was sane, but she'd been pushed to her limits of a defending mother bear. There was no tears in her eyes, there was no nothing, and she was the grandma. She said, look, I'm all cried out. All I want is justice. I want this son of a bitch found, and I want him brought back to me. And so I said, okay. I said, yeah, no problem. I says, uh, I can do that, Ann. I said, I'll, I'll find him. That was her name, Ann. And I will deliver him to, you know, whatever law enforcement agency you want me to. And she slapped her little tiny hand on the table. And she said, I don't think you understand me, Casey. I want that son of a bitch brought back to me. Alive. So I explained the rules. I, I told the grandmother that... uh I could only talk to her husband one at a time. I said I couldn't, you know, talk to both of them at once. It's to protect all of us. And she said she understood. Why, why is that? And you said to protect all of us. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I'm still trying to be cautious about everything. And, you know, if you got two people that you sit down with and you're discussing intimate details of what you want done, then there's two people's word against yours, whereas if it's just one person and one person, it's my word against theirs. We just met and discussed some details. It's my word against theirs. So her husband came walking back in, and uh, he had a a dossier, a file with him. And he says, here, Casey, you're going to need this. I kind of looked at him, and he goes, I put this together myself. He goes, the police don't have it. So I started looking through it, and I was pretty impressed. He had dug through the three years of this guy's life and collected a lot of information. His favorite drinks, what he liked to eat, things he liked to do, his hobbies, uh, little bits and pieces about where he'd come from before, things like that. Things, little breadcrumbs. I'd read through this dossier so many times, so many times, and finally what I decided was to backtrack the guy. And bingo, sure as shit, I ended up finding a, a lead. Um, there was a store that he'd visited, Terry, Terry Lentz is his name. Well, it's not his real name, but that's what we're going to call him. And uh, he had flaming red hair. I mean, bright red hair and pale skin and a bright red beard. So he pretty much left an imprint wherever he went. 
I started out two and a half weeks behind the guy, but I was losing ground because I didn't know where he was. Well, now all of a sudden these leads started putting me closer. Mind you, we're still chasing around the United States at this point. And uh, I get the point that <laughs> it's obvious that we're going across the Canadian border. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, shit. So I did a lot of soul searching and thinking, and I realized that I was going to have to buy another rig because I couldn't take the wagon across the, the border, not with my current equipment in it. So I got this big old fancy shiny rig and, you know, put an extra coat of wax on it, loaded some gear in the back, and had a custom toolbox made for the back that was really heavy duty, a little extra wide, and off I went. So when I pulled up the border crossing, I introduced myself and, you know, made a big show of it so they'd remember who I was. I just told them that, you know, I was a, a guy that was going up scouting for moose hunting and stuff. And, you know, they were real friendly and cordial and searched my truck. You know, they looked in the windows and had me pull the trail out of the toolbox and, you know, no big deal. And so off I went. The first thing I did is I called a contact up there that I'd done some work for in the past. There's a cache of supplies at his place. And I went there first and got a couple handguns and asp and knife and just some general stuff I'd need, clothing, things like that. I'm interested to know, and we're kind of getting into almost your office admin right now, but when you say to me, I called some people I'd worked for before, how do you, just something as simple as the logistics of storing the numbers of all of these people, how do you do that due diligence around... Those numbers aren't on a mobile phone, they're in my head. Every one of them. Every contact number I have, I dial. So the Marine's wife you've just told me about... Could you, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to do it, clearly, but could you recall her phone number? Oh, yeah. I could call her right now. Huh. Do you have a system for that or a method for that? I don't know my daughter's phone number. I have total recall for numbers. There's a reason that I do not buy padlocks with tumblers anymore because I'll get a padlock and, and go to use it, and I'm sitting there going through the digits from my seventh grade locker room still because I've got all these numbers stored in my head. I talked to every hiker, every camper, every person that I could talk to. I'd pull up my big shiny red pickup and, you know, befriend everybody and just be that guy that was out doing moose scouting. And, you know, I always had my binoculars on my seat and all kinds of supplies. I started this hunt, it was like right at the end of summer. And so now we're starting heavy into fall, but in Canada, as you go farther north, there's not a lot of fall. It starts getting cold quick. You know, you're going into winter very quickly. I had never been so cold. You got to understand, I wasn't staying in hotels. I was camping out a lot. And there was already snow. I had to start trying to find warmer places to sleep. Sleeping in my truck was getting pretty rough. I wake up ice on the inside of the windows I'd have to scrape off. And, you know, sometimes I even was taken and putting uh, charcoal briquettes under my oil pan and a steel garbage can lid to warm the engine before I started because the oil was so thick and, you know, it was, it was pretty rough. And uh, I went to this old store and, and there was this huge, huge old bearskin jacket. And it had been well made and it was obviously old. Uh, one of the sleeves had even been chewed up quite a bit by probably a porcupine for the salt, to be honest with you, from people sweating. And I just thought it was cool, and it was getting cold. And I was trying to kind of blend with locals. In fact, by now I was saying, eh, a lot up in Canada. Everything's eh, you know. You want to go to the bar, eh, eh, you know, eh, <laughs> eh, everywhere. So I put the coat on. That became my new big coat. I could tell you I've humped so many trails and mountains, cabins, checking out every little lead I could, and he just disappeared. Casey's hunt for Lentz or Terry goes on for weeks. He follows these tiny breadcrumbs, but he still doesn't know where he is. What he does know, though, is that Terry has changed his appearance. He had been in this restaurant and been real friendly with this waitress, and she kind of got the creeps by him a little bit. That's why she remembered him. Lentz had ended up changing his hair. He'd cut it all off, and it was dark wasn't red no more. So he has a new look. And then Casey discovers a small town where Terry had bought a truck. Lentz had bought an old green Ford pickup, 70s, canopy on the back, nothing fancy. Good four-wheel drive, 
And then he went over to the military surplus store and he bought a bunch of stuff. And I asked if they knew which way he went. And they kind of pointed and said, well, we saw him drive that way. Just talk me through a little bit, if you will, from someone who is not an expert in this field, has no idea how these things work, would not know where to begin if you said to me now, Sam, go and find this person, here's a picture of them. I mean, I would not know where to begin. So, when... Sam, why you keep trying to take my job? <laughs> I tell you all my secrets, then you're going to come in here and start doing my work and I'm not going to be able to make a living. You said you were thinking of retiring. You never know. Maybe you want some <laughs> British, British woman to take over. There you go. <laughs> well, let me tell you this. I can't really disclose a lot of things for obvious okay. reasons. I, I have ways of, of developing leads that are proven and that seem to work at least up to this point. Back to the story. By now, literally months had passed. But KC's a hunter. We know that much. And knowing what Lentz was driving meant that he could draw up a map of where to look. I kind of had to figure out a range to search because when you search, you know, you, you search in a circle. You, you widen your circle and you keep following leads. And because the truck had a huge engine, I mean, it had a a 400 in it and it was a four speed I kind of knew how far he could go so that means I knew pretty much where he'd have to stop next if he didn't stop before I mean he sure he could go anywhere and go camping or whatever but if he had to stop for fuel there was only a certain range and that's what I did I started pursuing him that way I lost track of him again for probably almost a month and uh, I come in this little town and there was a pub you know at a, at a bar and a restaurant and uh, I was so hungry and so cold and so tired. And I ordered a big old bowl of moose stew and the poutine and ordered some biscuits. They came with it. I mean, these biscuits were like six inches across and two inches thick. And they brought out a big old tray of butter and honey. And I was slathering them. I was eating just like I was starving. And she was laughing at me, the waitress was, because I ordered a quart of milk. And she's like, yeah, I've never had anybody order that before. And... It just felt so good. I was finally warm. It was so nice. And then the area I was sitting in was more just like for young kids or families or meetings or whatever. But I could hear people laughing and talking and carrying on on the other side. And, you know, I'm always listening. So I just went literally right through the doorway, went around. There's a table right there in the corner. And it was that time in the evening when everybody's drinking after work and talking and a bunch of jovial people, really happy. You know, and I'm just sitting there listening to it. And uh, I overhear, oh, yeah, this handyman's awesome. My ears kind of perked up a little bit. And then I heard, yeah, it's strange, borrow tools. Now all of a sudden I was like, handyman borrow tools? I mean, what's the what's the chances of, of finding a handyman that doesn't have his own tools? It just, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially in a community of this size. It wasn't real big, but it wasn't real small. And then they had also said that he was a new handyman. So, yeah, I was, of course, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, God, I hope this is him. I really do. Sophia was the waitress. And uh, I'd asked her, I was like, who are those guys? She goes, oh, you know, that's Charlie and Kate and Dominic. She's like, yeah, they're good guys. They're always in here. And I'm like, you know, I, th I think I'd like to buy them a drink. And she's like, oh, they won't turn that down, you know. They'd, she'd, she'd, uh, they'd like to have, have that. And so she took me over there and introduced me to them. And uh, I got sat down. I bought a pitcher of beer. And, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, four glasses, four mugs. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. I'm not a, I'm not a beer drinker. Never have been. Uh, I think it tastes like shit, personally. So I'm looking around because I'm hoping there's like a, <laughs> a big plant <laughs> or something I can dump this beer into. Because i got to sit there and talk to these guys. No, there wasn't. So I had to drink. Mind you, I'm already full. So I'm matching these guys beer for beer, and I think we were on about our third or fourth pitcher, and they're starting to talk more and more, and a real pretty waitress has been going by. Her name's Amanda. She's Tate's sister. And the whole time, I keep kind of just leading and dropping questions, and they keep coming back. The handyman. He's changed his name there. He's not Terry Lentz anymore. His name's Barry found out that he was staying outside of town in a cabin and it was about 15 miles away and finally charlie says something like uh yep yeah he's uh he's been after tate's sister since he got here i said wow she uh got kids 
And they're like, yeah. Yeah, she got two. I didn't even know what to say. And oh man, I swear to God, my blood went cold. It did. And, uh, you know, I asked, of course, if he was going to be in. And they're like, oh, no, he had to work late or something. And, you know, he comes in occasionally and sees Amanda. Amanda was a widow. She was just raising her kids the best she could. Um, her daughter, I do believe, was nine. Boy was a little younger. So that was right in the age range that Lentz had, you know, molested the other girls. You know, and of course they kept asking me, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I'm like, well, you know, I'm just was checking out for the moose hunt and hanging out a little bit more, but I'm I'm also writing a book. <laughs> and they're like, you're a writer? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here to write a story. I said, this is a good town, good inspiration. I was like, I really want to get this book written. And uh, I told them that I need to find a place. So uh, one of them suggested a place for me to stay. They had a room available. So I parked my big shiny truck right out front and the beauty of the place they suggested that I stay, I could see the, the bar really easy. So I pretty much made that window of that room my, my sitting spot. And uh, the next morning I went out and bought a snowmobile. The snow was pretty deep, and people use snowmobiles just like cars there. It was how you got around. It's how you went places. And the other thing I bought was a computer, <laughs> a laptop computer. <laughs> so every day I'd get up and sit in this window and... I took my meals over at the bar and got to know Dominic and Tate and Charlie better and kind of maintain a front. Did you check in with Anne and the Marine during this time? No, I don't waste my time or anybody else's time. That's one of the rules of my work. People are so, you know, everybody nowadays wants all contact all the time. Mm. You know, they got their what? They got their Instagrams and their Facebooks and cell phones. and Everybody's connected all the time. That's not the way I work and it's not the way I won't. In fact, I don't even have a phone with me that's working typically when I'm working. You know, I'll have a working phone with me, but it's like got nothing in it. It's in case I need it for an emergency. So, no, I tell people, you'll hear from me when I have news. You know, I told them, you try to contact me, you're not going to be able to. I took the snowmobile out. You know, I'm just driving around, getting my inspiration for my book. And while I'm driving around, getting my inspiration for my book, I'm looking for Lentz's place. So I got out there and snowshoed into where his cabin was. I parked the snow machine quite a ways away over on a snowmobile trail. It was dark. It wasn't a big deal. This area, you know, he's out. Probably the closest person to him was a couple miles away. You know, there was no dogs, no neighbors. Snowshoot over and start checking out his cabin, looking through the windows, and, you know, I see a little pair of girls' rubber boots. One of them's kind of sitting over on the side and water around it, and I'm realizing that the kids have already been there. My stomach's just turning. But at least I knew where the location was now, and I headed back to the pub, and the guys are talking and joking, and I'm buying the rounds again, which, you know, they're always really happy to receive that. You know, Amanda was working, and it wasn't long after that that this great big red-headed guy comes walking in. And I knew who it was. I mean, I, I knew. Hair was cut short, red beard was growing in. Hair was thick. And uh, he's, he's a fit, strong guy. He's a big guy, real big guy. Usually as big as the Marine guy that had hired me. And he walks over to the table and he's shaking hands with Dominic and Tate and Charlie. And they introduced me to him. And uh, turned my stomach as I held out my hand. I stood up. And I took his hand and he started smashing on my hand. <laughs> and I couldn't help it. I kind of broke my composure a little bit and I, I turned my own dogs loose and I, I did. I smashed the living crap out of his hand. I smashed it hard and I looked at him and I smiled and I said, nice to meet you. And, and I was just looking at him and smiling. I let his hand go and he kind of rubbed his hand and made a comment about me being a barbarian. Dominic and Tate started laughing. They're like, yeah, barbarian. Look at his coat like a bear. Barbarian. You know, they're making jokes. I just wanted to punch him in the face. I did. I, I wanted to eat that guy's lunch right there. I kept my poker face on, but I I wanted nothing more than to just cave this guy's head in. So then Amanda comes walking out. She comes over and they give each other a quick kiss and my stomach just turned. 
So Lynch sat down at the table, and uh, we're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden Lynch's like, I got to show you guys something. And we follow him outside, and there sitting outside is a nice, shiny, white Ford four-door long bed power stroke turbo diesel truck. And Lynch says, I got this so I could take Amanda and her kids around so she didn't have to commute in that little car and run around and that way that her mom doesn't have to watch him so much. Amanda got all happy and giddy about it and, of course, started loving all over him. And the whole time I'm just thinking, Jesus, it's obvious what the guy's doing. You know, he's embedding himself with Amanda so that he can get closer to the kids. And, you know, how long will this take? Months, year, days, who knows? So I head back the next day and going about my normal routine. I'm sitting in my window, typing away on some keys, acting like I'm doing something, and I'm really not, and I'm planning out my whole day. I went over to the restaurant and ate. Amanda was there, and uh, that night, Amanda and the kids were going to her mom's. She was supposed to be staying there, and he was going to be by himself going home that night. And I decided right then and there that I needed to take him that night. No matter what I had to do, I had to take him that night. It's Casey versus Lance in the thick snow. Right after this short break. Hello there, I am Tom Fordyce and I'm one of the producers on American Vigilante. I do hope you're enjoying the series. Now, if you need a break from KC and you're feeling peckish, why not try Factors No Prep No Mess Meals? They're a great way to meet your wellness goals in time for the summer, if it ever arrives, with chef-crafted meals like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Factor always makes fresh meals, never frozen. They're dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. And they taste really good. They've got loads of options from breakfast to dessert. There are 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality dishes with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and blackened salmon. But all without prep and the cleaning up. Head to factormeals.com slash American50 and use code American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code American50 at factormeals.com slash American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. 
Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Casey's quest to find Lens had lasted the best part of five months, with most of that time spent in Canada. But to capture Lens, Casey knew he'd have to take him back to the US by road. So every week, he'd cross the border. And the reason I was doing that was because I wanted the Border Patrol to notice me, to recognize me, and to become comfortable with me. He'd stay one or two nights in the US, and then go back to Canada. Like clockwork, boom, boom, boom. I'll search for five days, I'll head back. Search for five days, head back. I was all over Canada. It was a rough deal, but they had to get used to me. But on the day that KC was gonna try and detain Lentz, there was a diary clash. I came upon the day that I was supposed to be heading back to do my crossing again. And there was no way with this timeline that I was going to be able to do that. I had to miss my crossing. It was kind of at that point where Amanda's life was going to get impacted negatively. So I'd planned that night to take him. I packed up my gear, my snowshoes, I put on my bear coat, and uh, I took off. It was after dark. Oh, and he's got these things that he calls nods. That's night vision goggles to you and me. Nods are night optical devices. Minor at Generation 3, so it's a very good level of resolution. Everything's green. Look like a cyclops. It's got a mask that goes across the front of your face and then a single big tube that comes out in the center. The reason I had the night vision on was to help try to pick my path and avoid the heavy crusted ice. I'm a big guy. I bust through, and when I bust through, it gets crunchy. Crunch time for Casey, both with the snow and lens. I couldn't take my truck out to take him, and I couldn't take the snow machine out to take him because whenever I took him, I couldn't leave a trace behind me. I had to leave no tracks, so my only option was to hoof it. So I had to make 15 miles and get set up before Lentz got home, and I had to do it without breaking a sweat because, you know, when you're in those temperatures, if you break a sweat, the sweat will form as ice against your skin, and then when you stop moving, you'll get sick, you'll get hypothermia quick. The temperatures were like 10, 15 degrees below zero. The snow out there was, I don't know, a good three feet deep at least. And there were drifts, sometimes the drifts were 40, 50 feet across and six feet deep. And it took me about three to four hours. I made really good time. And I got tucked in under that spruce tree. I took my snowshoes off, made myself comfortable. And I just waited probably three hours. It sapped me. It sat me bad. And then finally, I heard the noise of the power stroke diesel engine. It's, it's pretty uh, unique. And I heard it coming down the road. And he pulled up in the driveway, and he got out, and he walked around the passenger side and opened the door, and Amanda got out. And I was like, son of a bitch. You know, Amanda's with him. <laughs> How am I going to do this, right? Well, at the back of house where Lentz was staying or Barry there was a woodshed and that's what they heated the house with was a wood stove and I noticed that you know there's always tracks going out the woodshed and that night I figured that the woodshed might be the best place to take him one thing about Lentz he never hung his keys up when he came in the house put him in his pants pocket so I knew I'd be able to use his truck and I wouldn't have to go back in the house with the man in there so I watched him through the window Uh, They had dinner, had a little fire going in the wood stove. She served dinner, and they sat there talking, holding hands. Well, Amanda started undressing to go into the shower. And Lentz, I heard him say, I'll be right back. I'm going to go out and get some wood. So I moved over and positioned myself over off the side of the woodshed on the far side. I took my big coat off. I took my gloves off. I took off my night vision. And he came out. And he got that load of wood with his arms. 
And right when he's walking out of the woodshed, I timed my kick as good as I could time it. And I did. I timed my kick perfectly. I was going to hit him in the side of the knee. He was going to go down. But Lent slipped on the ice. And when he slipped, my kick missed his knee and it hit him on the thigh. But because that's where all the strength is, he went down. The wood landed on top of him. He saw me and he knew immediately who I was. And the fight was on. He jumped at my legs and we were down rolling around the snow. It was knuckle and skull. He was hitting me. I was hitting him. He cut my head pretty good. I mean, I was bleeding down my face and into my beard. Kind of hit a position where we both got to our feet. I pounded him a little bit. And he pulled out this big long knife. And he goes, you're here to take me back, aren't you? And I looked at him and I smiled. I didn't say nothing. I reached around behind my back on my left side and I pulled out my asp. It's a retractable baton. So he came in at me with that knife pretty quick and all I did is I took that asp and I smacked him right on the side of the wrist and it busted his wrist. And as soon as I hit that wrist, his hand opened up, that knife dropped and I got around behind him and I started choking his ass out hard as I could. So as we're fighting, you know, he actually got weaseled around and got away from me again and he was almost facing me. And I got both my thumbs and I buried both my thumbs into his eye sockets and he screamed. It sounded like somebody was tearing his guts out. When he did that, I got around behind him again and I got that sleeper on him this time, wrapped my legs around his waist and I choked him until he couldn't even move. He was done. I got the zip ties on him. I was fumbling with my fingers and I put zip ties around his wrists behind his back. I put some around his ankles and I put some around his mid-thigh. I went over and I got my gloves and kind of fought them back onto my hands. Felt like clubs. I couldn't hardly move them at that point. And uh, shrugged back into my coat, grabbed my night vision goggles, and I, I got lens over my shoulder. And I walked over to the truck, lifted up the canopy back, and laid him on the tailgate. And I got my glove off my hand again and get it down in his pocket. And I had to kind of tear his pocket a little because I, I had no dexterity. But I got the keys out. And right then... I hear a scream. And I turn around and there's Amanda. She's standing on the porch. And she goes, I know you. And she's got a phone in her hand and she's making a phone call. And I looked at her and I'm like, Amanda, it's not what you think. And she goes, just don't you move. It wasn't even a minute and I hear snowmobiles just coming. Just hauling ass. And I thought, shit. Two of the guys pulled up. It's Charlie and Tate. They didn't even waver as they got off their snow machines. They had guns pointed at the truck. And as I stepped out from behind the truck, they're like, Barbarian? And they're looking at me because they don't really know what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm their friend. I'm this guy that's been hanging out with them, and, you know, I've been a straight-up guy. Tate had a, a handgun pointed at me, and, and Dominic had a shotgun pointed at me. And Amanda, she'd come walking out, and she was crying. Her hair was already frozen. I told them, I said, it's not what you think. And I reached into my coat under my shirt. And I'm like, I'm just reaching for a cell phone, guys. And I get the phone out. I call back to the U.S. And uh, the Marine answers the phone. And I told him, I said, I need to talk to Ann. And he puts Ann on the phone. And I explained to her exactly what's going on. And the whole time, these guys still got their guns on me. And they walk closer. Ann tells me, let me talk to him. And I put it on speaker. And uh, the Marine's wife told them what had happened to her granddaughters and the neighbor's child. She described everything. And Amanda was the first to react. She let out a scream that you only hear out of a woman that is just furious. And she attacked Lentz on that tailgate. And she started hitting him. And testicles over and over. She was just beating on him and screaming and calling him names. So I searched the cabin, went through all Lentz's stuff, and I was found a cloth, bags the bank used, heavy cotton, and uh, there was quite a bit of money in there. I took 10000 off the top for my own expenses, and I gave the rest to Amanda. I also had found the title to the, uh, the Ford, and uh, I forged his name, and gave the title to her, too. I told her they were going to have to pick up the truck in town. 
Charlie helped me put the lens in the back of the truck and he threw some blankets over the top of them that would have been in the back back there to keep them going into shock. And I told him, I said, I got to get going, man. I just, I've got to go. And he goes, we understand, Barbarian. He goes, it's okay. I drove back into town, which was kind of nice because my feet were starting to become like clubs. I got to the hotel and I went around the back. I opened up the toolbox of the truck. I picked up Lance. Uh, his one leg's broken. <laughs> you know, his nose was broken. And his arm was broken. And he was cussing me. He was telling me I was a son of a bitch and he was going to kill me and telling me what I was doing was illegal and, you know, I had no right to hurt him and I had no proof and I just looked at him and told him to shut up. So I get him up into the toolbox and I'm working his ass in there. So his good leg I'd folded backwards. Of course it was going to be uncomfortable because I could give two shits about him, honestly. And I'm fitting him down in this big oversized toolbox. And finally I thought, you know what, fuck this guy. So I pulled his boot off. <laughs> he's, he's asking what the hell I'm doing. I took his sock off and stuffed it in his mouth. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, this is going to hurt. And I grabbed that broken leg and I twisted it. And I folded that leg right down in there and I pushed as hard as I could. And I heard it pop and completely separate. And he screamed through that fucking sock. And I put that tree in there on top of him. And he pretty much had passed out. I opened my bag of kitty litter. I had a big old bag of kitty litter. And I dumped it all over his crotch area. Because, you know, if he's going to pee or crap, I didn't want to smell it. And I closed the lid on that toolbox. And I fired up my truck and let it warm up. I went inside, grabbed my computer, got my things, washed my hands and warmed them up a little bit. And tried to wash most of the blood off my face and out of my beard because it was frozen all on my face and in my beard. I changed into a clean shirt and I went out and got in the truck and headed to the border. And it was snowing. It was it was bad. The plows hadn't hadn't even been out because it was late and it took me quite a while. I stopped about maybe five miles back and I administered a sedative to uh, Lentz. I wanted to make sure that he didn't wake up and cause problems for me. And I, I finally made it to the border. When I pulled at the crossing... I rolled the windows down the truck so they could look inside. I got out, popped the top on the toolbox, and and he's like, hey, man, don't worry about it. I mean, it was snowing. It was cold. The wind was blowing. He took a look in the truck with the flashlight, looked in the bed. And he's like, well, you have a good one. He goes, we'll see you again. I was like, yep, I'll see you again. Closed the lid of the toolbox and headed into the U.S. I made a phone call and told him I was on my way. When I pulled in their driveway... I'd given them a heads up about 20 minutes that I was coming. They had the garage open. I backed right into the garage, unloaded the toolbox, and, you know, the Marine had helped me set it down on the floor. Ann had come walking out. She looked at me, you know, and my face all cut, my eyes all black and swollen, and she's like, do you have any problems? I said, no, ma'am, nothing worth mentioning. She handed me an envelope and said, thank you. She gave me a big hug. And she goes, you can go now. That's all she said to me. I said, yes, ma'am. Do you ever know what happened to him? Well, yeah, I do. I delivered him to him. That's what happened to him. After you left him? (laughs) No, ma'am. Has it ever crossed your mind since? Nope. Don't even waste my time thinking about it. I think more about the turd I flushed down the toilet this morning. (laughs) How do you feel about the concept of revenge? When I say the word revenge to you, what sparks up in you? Revenge can kill you, you know. Revenge can be a very bad thing. It, it, It eats you from the inside out. But... With that being said, we're all human. And I know that if somebody was to hurt my family or my loved ones, that there wouldn't be anywhere they could hide. And when I caught them, they would die very slowly. Do you think that every human being has that ability to hurt somebody else, really hurt somebody else if they've been wronged? The thought of physically hurting somebody else... I can't imagine it. 
Hey, you become a mother bear, Sam. I know enough about you already. There's some grizzly in you, woman, and I see it. Do you think everyone's the same? No. No, I know people that their children have been molested or raped and did nothing. And so it's hard for me to fathom why something would happen to somebody's child and they could just act like it didn't happen. When you are hunting somebody who by all intents and purposes is a monster, who's evil, who's a hideous abuser. I have to become that person in their head. My own team guys told me, they said, it's a good thing you're not a bad guy because I'm really good at becoming what I'm after. Do you have to become a monster? No, I just have to be able to think like a monster. I'm a monster hunter. Coming up on our next episode. I made that guy take his clothes off right in front of me, and he pissed himself right there. He's pissing all over the floor. And I said, you turn around. I said, I'm going to have some of that sweet ass, buddy. So he goes and hops on his bike, and I mean, he's in the kitchen facing a door, and he's like, and he hops on it. Most people aren't like you, Casey. You need people like me that are willing to help out law enforcement. You think there's enough people like you who are as smart as you, trained as you, have a strong as moral code as you? You have no idea how many military people there are that are just like me. Because I'll tell you what, you want to see shit get cleaned up quick? You turn the dogs loose. American Vigilante is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Sam Walker. It's produced by Phil Brown and Steve Jones. The executive producer for Crowd is Mike Carr. Associate producer for Stowaway Entertainment is Jeff Singer. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you'd like another Crowd podcast to listen to, try We Didn't Start the Fire. It's a modern history podcast inspired by the lyrics of Billy Joel, covering JFK, Vietnam, Watergate, North Korea, Stalin, Einstein, Castro, Marilyn Monroe, and plenty in between. There's a new episode every Monday as they explore the post-war world and try and work out why the world is like it is today. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire in your podcast app. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. (laughs) Don't laugh at me whistling in a jaunty fashion. I wish I could whistle this well. Hello, my friend Tom and I. Hi guys, I'm Tom. Yeah, he's Tom. Have this amazing history podcast. It's called We Didn't Start the Fire, and it's the only podcast started by Billy Joel. And Katie, without being boastful, it really is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. I think that's being boastful. We go from Maryland to the mafia, from the Beatles to bombs. Yeah, it's politics, rock and roll, sport, television, the space race, and we're joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckridge. And me, Tom Fornice. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire and subscribe now. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. 
Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. a.m. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.